Holy Spirit, take them and cause them to penetrate deep into our hearts. For unless your spirit moves, nothing good happens here today. So we ask that your spirit would be very much present. We thank you that we have your word to remember. We have your word that causes us to, uh, to be convicted of our sin and that, uh, that we might uh, be mindful of how we are to live aright before the face of God. And so as we open your word, lead us and open our hearts to be receptive to it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Before I read Psalm 78, I'd like to, as maybe a, uh, a contrasting perspective, uh, offer a brief writing found in Paul David Tripp's book, Broken Down House. And, and again, this is a contrasting perspective, so listen to these words before we read Psalm 78. This is entitled, Me and Mine. Privacy fence, no sidewalk, attached garage, personal entertainment center. Frenetic schedule, half-acre plot, individualized living, lie of autonomy, deceit of self-sufficiency, delusion of self-righteousness, buy your way out of need, endless amusement pushes reality out of the way, never known, never knowing, never stepping beyond what is, comfortable, pleasurable, enjoyable, predictable, safe, door-closed silence, shrunken community of me and mine thinking I can do what I was never designed to do, live all by myself. Hold on to those words, contrast them with what we're about ready to read out of Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouths in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not... Hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell it to their children, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the work of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Do you hear the difference between me and mine? The whole psalm is a story, the story, his story of God's people until the time of King David. It's a story of God's faithfulness shown to his people for generations upon generations. Notice this psalm, it does not build to this resounding crescendo, this incredible climax, but rather it begins immediately with the application in an urgent plea that requires focused attention, immediate community, and generational action. The past brings clarity to the present and hope and meaning to the future. The more one reads, and if you have your Bibles open, this is a long psalm. Time doesn't permit for us to read the entire thing, but more you, the, the more you begin to read through it, you begin to see that there is this urgent plea to teach and to instruct the next generation about our faithful covenant promise-keeping God. Lock in on verse 37. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him. They were not faithful to His covenant. In summary, God has been good. He's been so faithful. He establishes his covenant with his people, his chosen people. He could have chosen any people, but he chose them. 
Have you ever been chosen first? How would you feel? Well, God chose, not just chose his people, but he kept reminding them over and over and over why they were his people, why they were his chosen people, his select people. And he, he offers these promises and, and covenants that you will be my people and I will be your God. And he offers it, these covenants to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham and Moses. And I believe before we press forward and look at the rest of the psalm, I think we need to look back because what is it that we're supposed to tell the next generation? I think looking back at these four covenants will help us as we look to move forward. And as we go through each of these four covenants, here's what I'm going to really challenge you. What are the takeaway points in each of these covenants? What are the points of remembrance that we are instructed, tell your children, that they would tell their children. So we begin with the covenant of commencement with Adam as cosmic drama has been enacted, where God's glory as a great creator has been assaulted and his handiwork has been disharmonized with the serpent's deception toward Adam and Eve. And we see in Genesis 3.15 where God comes to the serpent and he says this, because you have done this, he This is Christ will crush your head. So here we are, right at the beginning of creation. God says to Satan, I'm going to, let's get something straight right now. Let me tell you how this thing's going to go. You're going to lose. I'm going to win. This is how this is going to go down. The outcome has been determined. I'm going to allow the battle to rage for a period of time. But I will set all things right for all time, period. C.S. Lewis gives us this beautiful imagery from the brilliant theologian Mr. Beaver in Narnia where he recites the prophetic poem at the great hope and expectation that Aslan the king would someday return and change the horrible plight that had fallen all over Narnia. And he says these words, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrow will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Don't we need to hold on to this hope? Don't we need to be reminded of this? Yeah, it's it's winter. But spring is coming. We need to be reminded of this over and over again. That God is very much alive. He's at work. He hasn't taken a day off. He's not on vacation. He hasn't turned his back on us. Look at Jeremiah 31.3. It says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. Here God is saying, I am going to see this through to completion. At the time and the day of my choosing, I will set all things right once again. So people of God, be encouraged. You're on the winning side. Don't grow weary, though the battle rages. And then he continues with the covenant of perseverance with Noah, where we're given this beautiful picture of God caring and providing for his people, even in the darkest of circumstances, where he could be wiping the, 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 uh, the human race off the face of the earth, but he doesn't. Because he sees a small faithful remnant. And Noah and his seed as they, they are the gracious, the gracious, they're the recipients of this gracious relationship between God and his people. In Genesis 6-8, we see from among the masses of depraved humanity, God in his rich mercy directs his gaze and his grace toward one man. In these words here, but Noah 
found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then in in 6.18 of Genesis, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with them. And then in Genesis 7.1 we read, And Yahweh said, Go, you and all your house into the ark, for you, for you, I have seen as righteous before me in this generation. Here's your takeaway. This is dads. Listen in, dads. Notice God's attention and focus on families and specifically the righteousness of the single, the head of the home. It's the basis for including the entire family to be blessed from the deliverance of the imminent flood. Fathers, is this not a strong admonition for how we lead our families? Where God's God's grace and his gaze would fall upon not just us as individuals, but our families corporately for our, per, for our personal faithfulness to him. There's a, a wonderful, uh, if, I love reading uh, sermons by, by some of the, the great patriarchs of the faith and also those of the Great Awakening. And, and Jonathan Edwards in his farewell sermon, if you, if you have, a, you have, we have Moses' farewell sermon and David's farewell message and and, and here, Jonathan Edwards, this is his final message to his congregation. What does Jonathan Edwards have to say to his congregation? Must be noteworthy. What's he going to leave them with? And he says this. Let me now, therefore, once more, before I finally cease to speak to this congregation, repeat and earnestly press the counsel which I have often urged on the heads of families, fathers, while I was their pastor, to great painfulness in teaching, warning, and directing their children. Bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Beginning early while there is yet opportunity. And maintaining constant diligence of labor of this kind. Take heed that it not be with any of you as it was with Eli of old who reproved his children. But restrain them not and that by this means you do not bring the like curse on your family as he did on his. If your family is like mine, you have conflict. And fathers, we have that obligation, responsibility. Oftentimes I'll tell my, my wife, we're in those conflicts with, with our boys. And I say, I will not be an Eli. I will not be Eli. And it's difficult at times. Continuing on, we see that with Abraham, God drives this point home for Abraham in a very vivid and graphic way. We know the, the covenant that God told Abraham, you're gonna, I'm going to make you a great nation. The sands of the seashore and the, the stars in the sky. And, and Abraham's saying, I don't see it. <laughs> I got this really old wife, and I'm really old, and we have no kids. I don't see it. Can you help me out here a little bit? I believe God, but can you? I don't see a way in the thicket here. And God says, all right. Genesis 15, God comes to him, and he says, all right, Bring me, bring me a calf, three goats, and a ram, and I want you to cut them in half, and I want you to lay them on the ground. Now, Adam knows what's coming, because this was the form of the greatest contract one could ever enter. My wife and I, we purchased three homes over the years, and I, we, every time we, we do this, I always joke, it feels like we're signing our life away. You've got the stack of papers. Well, that's nothing compared to this covenant that God is about ready to enter with Abraham. And Abraham knows what this means. Abraham knows that this is an agreement between two people. 
And as these, this flesh is torn apart and there's blood-soaked pathway, that the two are to walk down this pathway and if, and they say, are saying in essence to one another, if I break this promise, if I break this covenant, then let it be done to me as has been done to this, to these pieces of flesh. May my flesh be torn apart. It's a pretty serious commitment. And so, so Adam knows, okay, God and I, we're going to walk down this. We, we got this agreement that we're in together. But there's a twist to this. God comes to Adam in, in, in a sleep. Or causes a great deep sleep to fall over, not Adam, excuse me, Abraham. And, and Abraham sees God in a flaming torch passing between the divided meat. The Almighty, the King of creation, the Lord of lords, alone passes. He chose, chooses to commit himself to the fulfillment of the promise. Abraham does not pass through the meat. Now, it's not that Abraham had no obligations. He had to leave his fatherland and later is told to administer the seal of the covenant to all the male descendants through circumcision. As we know, it is in Christ Jesus that God fulfills this promise. He offers his own body and his blood as victim of the covenantal curses. His flesh is torn that God's word to Abraham might be fulfilled. That's why we're going to do this today. That's why at the communion table we recite these words from Matthew 26. Take, eat. This is my body that is broken for you. This is the blood of the covenant that is shed or poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This is Aslan the great king. The lion of Judah making all things right once again. And finally, up to this point, we have the covenant of the law with Moses, or the Mosaic covenant when, when God gives his law at Mount Sinai to the people. And as we look at this, we see there are blessings if you keep the law and there are cursings if you don't. And it appears as though this, is a, this covenant is a deviation from all the others. It seems very man-centered. So if, if I do what's right, God's going to bless me. And so it's, it's just based on me. And, and no, this is a continuation of all the other covenants because more than ever, what this shows is this. You can't do this. You need a true king. Someone who can do this perfectly. That's why we see in Galatians 3.16, Paul says, the law which came 430 years afterwards, after what? The Abrahamic covenant, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. So we know that Christ did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. For it was only he who could make right what was destroyed in the garden. So how do we respond to this amazing grace? Romans 6 talks about this. It says, what shall we then say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer comes back, no, God forbid. Paul then talks about how when we died, when Christ died, we died. And our old man was crucified with him. We no longer serve sin, but we're freed from it. In Romans 6, he says, as Christ was resurrected from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in the newness of life. Here's your reminder. Here's your takeaway. We need to remember that grace is not opposed to effort. We are to pursue righteousness, but it is opposed to earning. That price was paid in full. It was a free gift freely offered to us. 
So here, so as we look back, so as we read these words and we say, tell these things to your children. Tell, those are the things. That's the past that brings today, the present, brings us clarity. So the author of Psalm 78, in summary, he's saying, listen, open up your ears. Pay attention to what I have to say. These things that our father told us, we have to tell our children. We can't hide them from our children. But instead, we got to tell the next generation. Then he gives why we ought to. There's a stern warning. Look at verse 8 again. And he says this because we've seen this before. We have seen what happens. That they should not be like their fathers. This is, we've been down this road before. A stubborn and a rebellious generation. A generation whose heart was not steadfast. Whose spirit was not faithful to God. So as you look through the rest of this psalm. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But I'm just going to pull out. Listen to, listen to his chosen people. Listen to how they respond as, you, as, we, as we look back. His people did not keep God's covenant. Refused to walk according to his law. Forgot his works and the wonders he performed. Yet they sinned still more against him. They rebelled against the Most High. Tested God in their heart. Spoke against God. Did not believe in God. Flattered and lied to God. Rebelled against him in the wilderness. Provoked God to anger. Did not keep his testimony. There are several times you're going to see, and God was angry. No kidding. But then look at God and his unfailing love for us. God's response. It's beautiful. He rained down on them manna from heaven. He rained meat on them like dust. Restrained his anger. He led out his people like sheep. He brought them to the Holy Land. He drove out nations before them. Settled the tribes in Israel. He put his adversaries to rout. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens. And he chose a man after his own heart, David, to lead them. That's our covenant God. I'm going to turn our attention, if I can, to parents, to grandparents. I'm going to refer to you as covenant makers. It is our desire as parents and as grandparents that we give our children much to be successful. We want them to, see, to have a good life. And, and yet when we turn the corner from, from being married, only married, where we're side by side looking at one another to now we have children, our lives change from not just being baby creators to populate the earth, but that our duty and our responsibility is that we would bring up children that would be followers of Christ. That is our responsibility. To teach them to follow God and His Word, His ways, all the days of their lives. Listen, back in, in Deuteronomy, Moses stands before the children of Israel and he says this, now this is a commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. And these words, I'm commanding you today that these would be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children and should talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You should bind them as signs on your hand, as frontlets before your eyes. You should write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This isn't a sometimes thing. This is an all-the-time thing. I love this passage. This is from, from David. Wouldn't you love to hear your children say these words? If you could be in, in, up in years and to see. That's why Scripture says there's no greater joy nor delight than to see your children walking with the Lord. Listen to these words, Psalm 71. 
David said, O God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until, don't, don't take my life, hold on, until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who come. Mom and dad, grandparents, are you catching the vision, the mission, what our, what our responsibility is? To youth of the, the church, Scattered, scattered about here. I don't know if you're, you've caught this, but this is really about you. Listen, look at verse 6 and 7. That the next generation might know them. Not just hear, but that they might know them. That they might seek deep into their hearts. Why? So they should set their hope in God. There's nothing passive here. You're being called, invited, welcomed, challenge to enter into the greatest story ever don't sit on the sidelines engage the question it's in the back of the bulletin will you be a covenant keeper or covenant breaker as you're sitting in this church as your your parents and your sunday school teachers and grandparents and you're taught from the pulpit will you hold on to these things there will be a point that you have to own these to embrace these these are mine that i want to someday pass these along to my own children i'd like to ask several questions of you all First is, where are your eyes fixed? Or what has captured your heart's attention? Because there's a lot. Sometimes we say, oh, there's a lot today. There's been a lot for every generation. But there is a lot today. But whatever captures your attention, whatever captures your affections of your heart will serve as your functional master. And I know we might not like this word, but what dominates our affections, what do- dominates our attention, can quickly become an idol. And D.M.L. Jones said, An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. An idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend. Anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time, attention, my energy, my money. Every idol has unbelief at its core. Every idol in essence is saying this, God, you are not sufficient. God, you are not enough. If you've not bowed your knee to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, you've got to know this. If you surrender your life, he says, freely come. As you come to the table later, and you hear this, you hear this word, might that be a conviction to your heart to say, I too need to be there, to be a covenant keeper, because salvation is freely offered, and you got to hear this. Well, salvation is freely offered. Everything else will demand that you purchase it. Jonah 2.8 says, Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Don't forfeit the grace that could be yours. John Piper in Hunger for God says, If you don't feel a strong desire for the revelation of the glory of God, it's not because you've drunk deeply and are satisfied. It's because you have nibbled at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there's no room for the great. God didn't create you for this. There's an appetite for God and it can be awakened. And I invite you to turn from the dulling effects of the world and the dangers of idolatry. In the words of Country singer Tim McGraw, live like you were dying. What would you do if you had another one week to live? 
Might your priorities change? What might you stop and what might you start pursuing? Second, I'd like to ask, who are you listening to? Might I offer a suggestion? And this is where the parents say, hear, hear, and stand and say, way to go. And, and students are saying, come on now. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 says to children, obey your parents. Honor your father and your mother. Listen to this. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So what would be converse? The opposite of that. Don't honor your mom and dad so it won't go well and you'll die soon. Maybe that's what that's saying. Proverbs 6, 20, 21 says, My son, keep your father's commandments and forsake not your mother's teaching. Bind them on your heart. Tie them about your neck. Because here's the reality. No one, no one loves you more than your mom and dad. The wisest man on earth throughout the book of Proverbs, he's, he's pleading with his son, my son, my son, listen to these words because they will be life to you. And third, to the youth of the church, where is your hope? Is it in scholarship, academics, ac- athletics, college, a girl, a boy, a job? Possessions. First Peter 1.13 says, Prepare your mind for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully. Fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Let me ask you, what do you do, what in your life do you pursue that comes as close to fully? What would fit into that category? And then might I ask, is it life-giving? Do you find true satisfaction, true fulfillment in that? Might this be a word that is a testimony you would hold to someday? Listen to this. Isaiah 61, 1-4 says, Of those that receive the good news of God by saying, They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. I don't know, parents, but I would love to have that be said of my three sons, that they would be oaks of righteousness in the church where God has planted them. For his honor and for his glory alone. So to the entire congregation, some of you might say, well, you've talked to parents, you've talked to grandparents, you've talked to youth, you're kind of missing me. So if I, if I miss you, this is to everyone here. Because here's the reality. God calls us to be a people. When God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12 that he would make him a great nation, And that he would be their God and they would be his people. This was not just between he and Abraham. God's purpose in working through Abraham was corporate. Individuals wait in a grocery line. A people gather like this. To worship together. To engage in each other's lives also throughout the week beyond just Sunday. To go to a men's retreat. To have small group. To have men's studies and women's studies. We see this established in Genesis 2 where he creates man. He says, it's not good that man should be alone. And he gives us women. We wanted, and he wants us from the beginning to live in community. Listen to Titus 2.14. We read, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. So what do we do? How do we live out Psalm 78? with and for this generation and the next. We have to do it in community. 
For the church is God's primary means of covenant succession. I work, I'm I'm the head of the upper school at Chattanooga Christian School. Nowhere in scripture does it talk about the Christian school. School, it talks about a people of God. It talks about families. A covenantal perspective does not divide life into neat little compartments. It doesn't separate families from the family of God, the church. To cultivate a haven of grace is not so much about what we do, it's about who we are. It's about being transformed by the gospel of grace as our church family journeys through life together in this covenant community. This might be radical. Think back of what I just read about this poem of me and mine. Because it's very, it's, it's very common that our practice of family is typically shaped more by culture than by scripture. Because we live in a culture of individualism, of selfism, of materialism, and this seeps into our families and we begin to isolate ourselves and become islands. While we might be devoted to one another, we're detached from the covenant family of God. And the, while the motive might be noble, there's intense desire to protect, but the strategy is flawed. As well intentioned families isolate and barricade. And when we barricade and isolate, we deprive each other of the greatest resource that we have, each other, the family of God. Could you imagine if as the children of Israel were walking through the desert and and a family were to say, you know what, I don't really like group travel with Moses. Group travel with Moses just isn't that great. He's got an anger problem. He struck a rock and he's... Uh, he broke our golden calf, and we just don't like group travel with Moses, so we're going to go this way. See how, how vulnerable, how weak they would be? And not to mention, the community would miss not having them part of that community. So don't keep church and family at a distance. I understand there's a delicate balance between home and church, and lines are distinct, and the wave, and we don't always get it exactly right, but if we pull away families, we will be weak and vulnerable, and we will deprive our families of the privilege of weeping with those who weep, of celebrating with those who celebrate. We'll deprive ourselves of people to grieve with and to rejoice with. Recently, my uh, nine-year-old son, Jacob, went up and asked our pastor, Pastor Joe Novenson's our pastor, and asked him after, serv- after one service, a uh, about four weeks ago, I ran up there and said, Pastor Joe, can I do the reading of God's word before you preach one Sunday? And, and Pastor Joe said, sure. And so he, he, the next Sunday, he stood up and, as, a, as a nine-year-old, and he, he, he read God's word. And afterwards, I had many, many people, many fathers come up to me and say, you don't know how that blessed our family. I had my, my, my young son say, Dad, I'd like to do that someday. Dad, I could see myself doing that. Father's saying, it was as if my son was up there. And here's the reality. Well, that was my son. That was their son. Because when we stand at covenant baptism, we say, we're going to stand, or we're going to raise our hand, and we're going to agree that we're going to help to raise that child, though not my biological child. That's our child. That's, he's starting to catch a glimpse. That's what the family of God is. So when we hurt, and there's someone hurting in our midst, we hurt with them. And we celebrate, we celebrate with them. 
That's how our community commends from one generation to the next God's covenantal promises and His faithfulness. And, and so we don't become weaker and vulnerable. And words don't really adequately describe the wonder and the beauty of God's people living out the reality of this relationship with Him. But when you see it, you know it. And it's a dazzling spectacle of grace. Might Hicks and Prez many years from now be a strong and vibrant community because of their faithfulness to God, God's word and because of their commitment to tell the next generation and to teach of his faithful covenant promises so they would tell your grandchildren, your children's children someday. Let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you that, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that these promises that you set thousands of years ago, they are true for us today. Father, as I prayed at the beginning, may these words not just be uh, words spoken, but that they would penetrate deep into our hearts. May we, may we, not out of guilt, out of compulsion, but out of great joy and delight, desire, to lead our families in this way that, that we might uh, commend your ways and your works to the next generation that they might walk with the Lord. That they might, their generation might not stop at Hicks and Prez, but that we would see generations, for as long as you tarry, continue. That your work might abound and go on beyond these walls. Father, we commend our lives and our times into your hands. We thank you that you are long-suffering. As Psalm 78 clearly it shows that, uh, that you, you love us despite our, our uh, failings and our shortcomings and, and our short-term memory of how you have provided and cared and loved for us. So, Father, as we go prepare us for the table, may we remember Some drink to forget. We drink to remember of your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.